Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel 20. It's going to be our text for today, 1 Samuel chapter 20. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 227. And as you turn in there, I just want to say, uh, kind of what a lot of you guys have already said, what a blessing it is to be up here preaching this morning. Um, as many of you guys know, and as you've heard this morning, we have had a very wild uh, month and a half, seeing our daughter being born and the joy that came with that, only to be immediately met with just many questions as we just had no idea what was going on as she was born very sick. Um, and, uh, and spent the first six weeks in the NICU. Um, however, I can honestly say during this time, and I think I, I certainly speak for my wife as well, than when I say just how much we have appreciated uh, just our church family during this difficult season, um, we have just been blown away by, by you guys and how you have stepped up and, and fulfilled Christ's command to bear one another's burdens. Um, and so we both, you know, just from the bottom of our hearts, just want to say thank you to each and every one of you. Um, I want to apologize for the many people who asked how you could help, and I didn't have an answer for you. Uh, we kind of had an Exodus 36 problem on our hands, where Moses had to tell the Israelites to stop bringing supplies, because they had way more than enough. Um, so I do apologize. You came to me. We were just so well taken care of. I, I really didn't have an answer. Um, but uh, I would say that was a pretty good problem to have. Um, and not only have we just been blown away by our, our loving church family, but, but we have just been floored you know, by our good and gracious God who, through his mercy and, and through his love, has brought healing to, to Verity and, uh, as you know, is with us today um, after she was discharged last week. So it's just been a very joyful week. It's been a very busy week, but, but we are so excited to have our daughter home with us and, and in attendance with us as well. And as I was just kind of preparing, I was just thinking, like, you know, as we heard uh, a couple days before she was discharged that she would be discharged on Sunday and um, the next week would be her first week in church, I was just thinking, you know, wouldn't it be just like the Lord to make it so her church service, her first service would be when and her dad preaches. And I know she's not going to remember. I think she's asleep right now. But, but I, I certainly will not forget that. Um, what a joy and a privilege it is to be with you all and, and to have our, our little girl with us this Lord's Day. So as we kind of transition here, last week we looked at 1 Samuel 18, 17, and we went all the way through to the end of chapter 19, uh, where we see Saul, after failing to have messengers capture David, now goes himself to Ramah, where David is to try and capture and kill him on his own. However, as he arrives, he finds out very quickly that the Lord is the one who is in control, not Saul. The text tells us in 1 Samuel 19, 23, and 24, And he, that is Saul, went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? As the ESV study Bible puts it, even the will of the king is subject to the Lord's will. And after this event, David flees from Naoth and he returns back to Gibeah to talk to Jonathan, who is his close friend and who is actually the son of King Saul, of the man who wants him dead. And this is where we go ahead and pick up the story today. 
And in this account, we see David, who is seemingly running out of options and just trying to figure out what to do as he's already a wanted fugitive through no fault of his own, coming to his close friend Jonathan to try and figure out what the next steps are for them both. And this narrative that we look at is a fascinating story that actually spans the length of three days, and there are four separate scenes that take place throughout this chapter. And in these three days and into this next chapter as well, we'll see David actually try and take matters into his own hands rather than placing his trust and his security in the Lord. And I think this kind of signifies a little bit of a turning point because up to this point, it seems that David can do no wrong. But in this chapter and in the next chapter especially, we see that even the best men are men at best. Warren Wearsby comments, these chapters, referencing chapter 20 and chapter 21, do not record a very beautiful picture, for in them we see the man of faith faltering and failing in his faith. Instead of waiting to seek the Lord's will, David flees in fear and tries to scheme his way out of his problems. And as the chapter first begins, we see David come to Jonathan and ask him, why does Saul want me dead? And to help you follow the flow of the passage, we're going to go ahead and label this first scene before Jonathan. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 11 together. Then David fled from Naoth and Ramah, and he came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father, that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at a table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. And if he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. And so they both went out to the field. Another commentator notes, how much better, as we get to this discussion, how much better would it have been had these two friends prayed together instead of hatching their scheme? As David begins speaking with Jonathan, I imagine he is frantically trying to figure out the solution, probably terrified, probably even out of breath, as it says that he fled from Naoth. And that word fled is the Hebrew word barach, and it means to run away, to to flee. And so not thinking clearly and letting fear cloud his judgment instead of immediately going to the Lord, which should have been his first response, he begins to try and find the solution on his own. And I think there's a lesson here for us in this. You know, how often do we make prayer our last resort rather than our first response? 
Now, when we're in the midst of the trial or we need to see a provision, we need to see a miracle in a hurry, do we first seek the Lord and go to him in prayer or do we try and figure it out on our own? And I think David typically did go to prayer first. However, it seems here that he fails to go to the Lord. Psalm 46.10 tells us to be still and know that I am God. And yet everything about this initial discussion, even to the point of David fleeing and coming and out of breath, seems to imply the complete opposite response from David. However, in the midst of this discussion and throughout this entire narrative, this chapter, we do see something very beautiful. This chapter shows us a clear picture of the security that covenantal relationship brings. And that's what I'm really hoping to focus on this morning. This chapter highlights the covenant that Jonathan makes with David, and as the text tells us, before the Lord. So we know that their friendship had already been formalized by a covenant back in chapter 18, but here they're kind of doubling down, so to speak, as that covenant is reaffirmed throughout this chapter. And we see that this covenant will provide security in four ways. So we see that the covenant provides help in the midst of uncertainty. The covenant is a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. The covenant demands a costly commitment. And the covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion. And in this initial conversation with Jonathan, we see that the covenant that has been established helps them in this great time of uncertainty. So David tells Jonathan plainly that Saul seeks his life. And the question to David is clearly why? As we mentioned earlier, David has been nothing but good to Saul up to this point. He's done everything that Saul has asked of him and more. So it doesn't make sense to David why Saul wants so badly to kill him. So he asks questions, hoping that maybe he can get to the bottom of it. However, Jonathan, on the other hand, is unconvinced that Saul even wants to harm David, which is surprising to say the least. In verse 2, Jonathan responds to David saying, You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. So I don't know if he is just trying to see the best in his father, or maybe he's even thinking back to the last discussion he had with Saul, where Saul vowed in 1 Samuel 19, 6, As the Lord lives, he, meaning David, shall not be put to death. And maybe Jonathan is just simply trusting his father's word. But whatever the reason, David corrects his, at this point in the story, naive friend and lets him know that even though Saul has lost the spirit of God, he's not lost his political sense. So David, in essence, tells him, Jonathan, Saul knows full well that you are pro-David. David knows what is going on and he understands that there is but a step between him and death. And in this dire situation, Jonathan agrees to help David in any way that he can, which prompts Jonathan and David to come up with a test to reveal Saul's true intentions. And what's interesting is the plan that they come up with in verses 5 and 6, David tells Jonathan to lie to the king. David tells Jonathan to tell Saul that when he asks, that David is in Bethlehem attending their yearly sacrifice. But this just isn't true. At its best, that is a best-case scenario, there is a yearly sacrifice taking place. I actually don't doubt that. I think there probably was this sacrifice taking place where the clans and the family members would get together. Um, So I, I do believe that part is true. But we know based on the text, that's not where David is. It says clearly in verse 24 that after Jonathan leaves, David hid himself in the field. 
And as we'll see, this is exactly what Jonathan tells Saul when he's prompted. So even though these, I would argue, are the wrong means, we do continue to see Jonathan's loyalty to David, his unwavering loyalty to his friend. And at this point, David appeals to Jonathan and also explains why he has turned to him. So let's look again at verse 8. So this is David speaking, says, Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? So the question becomes, why would David dare turn to the son of Saul when under Saul's attack? And it's only because Jonathan had concluded a covenant of the Lord with David. In other words, it was a covenant in which the Lord was the witness to and the guardian of its promises. This is referring back to the covenant that we touched on in 1 Samuel 18. This covenant involves firm promises and it involves solemn commitments. So that's why in his stage of uncertainty in David's life, he turns to Jonathan where there was a covenant, where there was a safe haven for David during this dangerous and confusing time. David then tells Jonathan to deal kindly with him. In other words, he expects Jonathan to act with chesed toward him because of their covenant, even though David recognizes that he is the one who is in need. And that word chesed can have many different meanings, and it's used all throughout the Old Testament. However, in every instance that that it is used, it carries the idea of love, of compassion, of affection, but not only just love, compassion, and affection, but also with the additional connotation of loyalty, of reliability, and faithfulness. And so hesed is not merely love, but it is loyal love. It's not simply kindness, but it is dependable kindness. And because of this covenant, David has confidence that Jonathan will treat him with devoted love. It's also important to remember that Jonathan's initial covenant in chapter 18 was initiated by this same type of love. The order then is as follows. Love gives itself in covenant and gladly promises devoted love in that covenant. The covenant partner then rests in the security of that promise and may even appeal to it, as we see David do here. And this text doesn't just end here with David and Jonathan. Its message is that in confusion and trouble, you take yourself to the one person who has made a covenant with you. And in David's world at this particular time, that was Jonathan. So it shouldn't surprise us then when we catch believers in the Bible in the act of doing what David does here, running to the one dependable refuge that remains, to the one who has bound himself to them by covenant and from whom they can expect Hesed-like treatment. However, we know that Hesed ultimately does not flow from just a formal covenant promise, but from the very nature of the covenant God, Yahweh, who is described in multiple places throughout Scripture as being rich in Hesed and fidelity, as abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And this is the hope that believers have with our Lord. We will never perish when we fall into the arms and the everlasting security of God's love. And ultimately, that is our only source of help and our only source of hope. And this is the good news of Scripture, that the one who is rich in Hesed has come near to an undeserving people. And believers seek Hesed, and they find themselves in the arms of Christ. So don't miss the lesson that David shows us. 
in times of confusion, in times of trouble, in trials and tribulations, take yourself to the one who has made a covenant with you. The Lord is our only hope in times of uncertainty. The next thing we see is that the covenant is a vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. So from here, the scene shifts from the discussion with Jonathan to the plan in the field. So starting off in verse 12 and going through verse 23. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed, because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come. For as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So if you were to simply just remove verses 12 through 17, you'd actually still be able to follow the story just fine. You, know, you, wouldn't, you would not miss out on any important detail regarding the actual plan of this, this situation, of this, this test run. So it seems to be that verses 12 through 17 are included, even though they in a way interrupt the flow of the story because they are of special significance. What takes place here is a beautiful exchange between two friends who have made a covenant with one another and who will make sure that they fulfill their end of the deal. In verses 12 and 13, Jonathan goes on oath to formalize his commitment to warn David if he finds out that Saul does in fact intend to kill him. If we look at his own words, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father." So Jonathan is formally committing himself to always act as he did in chapter 19, where he confronts Saul and tells Saul that it would be a sin if he were to act out on his hatred and harm David. And that's precisely why this covenant is so strange. I mean, in that time, you just simply did not do what Jonathan does here. It would be just ludicrous to hand over your place to your rival and make a promise to protect him at all costs, especially when your place was the crown prince. I mean, the normal response would be to do what Saul is trying to do, to kill David, 
all signs would point to that would be the next step. In fact, that's what anger saw so much, as we'll see in verses 30 and 31. Jonathan's covenant commitment to protect David makes absolutely zero political sense. And as Dale Davis points out, Jonathan really did seek first another kingdom. It didn't make sense. This is one of the strange things that covenant accomplishes. Even stranger is the commitment that Jonathan, Jonathan then urges on David in verses 14 through 16. Jonathan knows that there will come a time where he will be the needy one. And Jonathan in these verses looks beyond the current crisis with Saul and he pleads with David to show kindness and not to cut off his hesed to Jonathan's descendants. Jonathan knows that David will become king, so he pleads with him to show favor to not only Jonathan, but also to his line. And this, again, was a massive deal. To say it was countercultural for a king to show favor and kindness to his main competitors for the throne would be like the understatement of the century. In those times, kings solidified their position as king by wiping out anyone who may be in line to gain the throne. It was not a pretty sight. It was a mass purging that would take place in order to try and secure the throne. And you don't even have to look outside of Scripture to see this practice. You can read about Basha in 1 Kings 15, or in 1 Kings 16, you read about Zimri or Jehu in 2 Kings 10 to find out what happens to the remnants of a previous regime. There, this kindness wasn't practiced, to say the least. I mean, they're, they're slaughtered. That, that was how, that was what happened to the remnants of those in line for the throne. However, after making this plea, David gives his oath to honor this agreement. And as we will see later in the story of David, when David becomes king, he does honor his end of the deal long after Jonathan is gone by showing kindness to Mephibosheth, who is a son of Jonathan. If that story sounds a little familiar to you, I hope it does. This was actually what our scripture reading was for this morning, and I wish we had the time to unpack that story because it is just amazing. Um, It's just a very remarkable story, but we will get to that story eventually. But the point that is made here today is that David, like Jonathan, also honors his part of the covenant, his part of the deal. And even when all signs would point to removing the line of Jonathan, David chose to preserve Jonathan's family because he gave his promise through a covenant to do so. And this covenant became the vehicle for uncommon faithfulness. So from here we move into the actual plan from verses 18 to 23. These verses uh, simply detail the sign that Jonathan would use to notify David as to what Saul's real attitude and intentions are towards him. Jonathan would come to the field on the third day and shoot three arrows near a rock where David would be hiding. And the directions that he would then call to the young boy was to go and retrieve the arrows. And this would be the signal to David whether it was safe for him to return or if he needed to flee. So if Jonathan told the boy that the arrows are in front of him, that meant that David could return, that it was safe to come back. But if Jonathan told the boy that the arrows are past him, then that was the sign that David needed to run, that it was no longer safe to stay. 
And I'm sure there's many who will take these signs and try and maybe over-spiritualize them and, and include something about them, um, something that, that is of spiritual significance. But that was not really the approach as I was studying that I came to grips with. Maybe there's some hidden meeting that I missed as I was studying, but I just simply saw this as a sort of code between two friends that Jonathan would use to deliver a hidden message to David so that the boy wouldn't know, but they, they would understand what was going on. And I didn't really see anything more than that. So after agreeing on the plan, David hides and Jonathan leaves. And then we see the scene shift yet again from the field to the table with Saul. <clears throat> and it's at the table with Saul that we see that the covenant demands a costly commitment. So let's go ahead and look at this scene together, starting in verse 24. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger, and he ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So here we, as the readers, gather to see the scene at the table play out. And at the beginning, it's a pretty typical monthly occasion. You know, Jonathan is there opposite his father. Abner is there next to Saul, the king. And Saul is there seated against the wall, most likely to protect himself from any surprise attack so he'd be able to see anything coming his way. And they're there to celebrate the new moon, which was the mark of the beginning of the month in the lunar calendar. This is one of the main festivals that were celebrated in that day. However, as we already know, as we see that there is one glaring problem at this dinner. David's seat is empty. <clears throat> and at first, Saul doesn't really think much of it. He just thinks that maybe David is just ritually unclean and unable to participate on the first day. But on the second day, when David is still not in attendance, Saul becomes suspicious. And as Dale Davis points out, this is when the fireworks begin. So this whole section begins with David's seat empty, and it ends with Jonathan's seat empty. And after the second day of absence, the conversation begins. So Saul asks his son plainly where David is. And as David had requested earlier, Jonathan passes on the excuse, and I would also add the lie to Saul. And this is all the information that Saul needs to hear. 
Look again at Saul's reaction to this in verses 30 and 31. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Saul does not understand the wisdom or the power of God. And Jonathan's stupidity, as Saul sees it, makes him seethe with rage. Jonathan, in his humility, has put the Lord's servant, David, he has put the Lord's word, the rejection of Saul's line and the kingship of David, and he has put God's kingdom first, even though Jonathan is the one who should have been in line for the throne. This absolutely bewilders Saul. This makes no sense to him. So one could say that in this, Jonathan emptied himself, and he was willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Jonathan took Matthew 6.33 to heart, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this is why Saul simply could not understand Jonathan and why he thought he was such a fool. Why Saul screams at Jonathan, you nor your kingdom shall be established. However, what he didn't understand is that this did not move Jonathan. Jonathan had come to grips with this earlier. Jonathan was bound and committed by covenant to David. Even if it cost him the relationship with his father, he was going to honor the covenant. Jonathan would have understood Jesus' teaching in Luke 14, 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So what does Jonathan teach us here? I believe the lesson here is that true and abundant life does not consist in securing you and your kingdom, but rather in reflecting the Lord's faithfulness in covenant relationships. And there's something very free about that. Now, Jonathan acknowledged that the kingdom was not his. It was the Lord's, and therefore it was David's. So his life did not need to be centered on his own ambition, what can I get, but rather on God's providence, what God has freely given. And as believers, our reigning passion in life should not be to make our own way, to make our own mark, or to try to simply gain our own place and get ahead. And that may be costly, but as we see in the example of Jonathan, it is liberating. And while John under, Jonathan understands this, Saul clearly does not. And a far cry from Saul's response to Jonathan last time they spoke in chapter 19, where Saul says that he will not be put to death, Saul lashes out at Jonathan after hearing this. And in this moment of intense rage, Saul hurls his spear at his son, transferring his anger from David onto his own son, Jonathan, in that moment. So help me out here. There's this, this dinner that's been taking place and everything's been going great. It's been peaceful and then people start yelling and then a spear gets thrown. So I think today we would refer to this as a mostly peaceful dinner. And after this awful response by Saul, Jonathan, knowing that Saul intends harm to David, which at this point seems to be pretty clear, he gets up and he leaves the dinner table, which judging by what has just happened, I would say that's probably the smart move. I mean, could you imagine if he had stayed? 
if he had stuck around, like I'm sure some of you guys have had some like really awkward family dinners, but if Jonathan stayed at dinner after that, I, I don't care what you've experienced, that one takes the cake. I mean, like Jonathan would be sitting there like, hey, Dad, I know you just tried to impale me, but can you pass the salt? So wisely, Jonathan leaves the table, and then he returns to the field in the morning to share the heartbreaking news with David. And here, our scene shifts one final time from the table to back in the field. And it's back in the field where we will see that the covenant provides peace in the middle of confusion. So let's look now at the final scene of this chapter, starting in verse 35. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them into the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap, and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So the stage has been set, and Jonathan now knows what he must do, sorrowful as he may be to do so. So he heads out to his appointment with David, bringing along with him a young boy to help make the message clear. And after he shoots the arrow and the boy is retrieving it, David receives his answer. In verses 37 and 38, Jonathan tells the boy, Is not the arrow beyond you? Hurry, be quick. Do not stay, which that second part is actually an add-on to the original sign, most likely to indicate David's urgency to leave. This makes it abundantly clear. It is not safe for David to return. It's actually probably even worse than they initially feared. And after Jonathan sends the boy back into the city, we see David and Jonathan's final embrace before they leave. And though they'll see each other briefly again in chapter 23, this really is the last main encounter that David and Jonathan will have with one another. So verse 41 says that David rose from beside the stone heap and he fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And in the midst of this grief, Jonathan gives one last final word of comfort. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. So given what's at stake here, Jonathan, Jonathan's words seem strange. Go in peace. However, we know that Jonathan is completely serious. Jonathan's not claiming that everything is peaceful or that David will not meet danger at essentially every single turn because we see that in the life of David. Jonathan is saying that David can go in peace because there is peace between them. Dale Davis once again comments, it's as if Jonathan urges, go in peace because there is peace in this one item. In this one relation of ours, there is safety. There is an anchor here. There is this one relation that holds fast when all else may be in flux and in confusion. 
There is this one area where peace is established and where peace reigns. And is this not a beautiful picture of biblical peace? Biblical peace is often not a general calmness, but rather a peace at the center in the midst of such turmoil. In just a few moments, we'll be singing Christ our hope in life and death. And in the second stanza, we sing who holds our faith when fears arise, who stands above the stormy trial, who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ. That is true biblical peace. Not that we never face trials, but that there's peace in the midst of the trials because of Christ. In John 16, 33, Jesus tells his disciples, In me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The believer then does not have peace simply because things are peaceful. We, he has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has established a covenant with him through nothing of their own doing. And it is the Lord who speaks peace in our disappointments, in our dangers, and even in our disasters. We see that true security is found in the new covenant, established not by man, but by God through his Son. That's actually what serves as the transformative truth for this morning, that true security is found in the new covenant established not by man, but by God through his Son. This is very important to see because as this chapter ends, David is in a dire situation. Things have already been going south for David, and it continues here. David has already lost his mentor, he's lost his position, he's lost his spouse, and now here he loses his best friend. And in the next chapter, on top of everything else, we will see that he will also lose his dignity. This is a very low point in David's life. And yet, even though he has lost so much, there is one thing that David will never lose. He will never lose his God. Even as David's world continues to crumble around him, even as everything is changing and he is losing everything, the Lord remains. And this is where David's true security is found. Not in the Jonathan covenant, but in the Davidic covenant that God established with David. The covenant that promised that he will be his God forever. He will never leave him. He will never forsake him. The line of David will be preserved through and and Christ will come. The Savior, the Messiah will be through this line. That covenant is what brought David eternal peace, eternal security. In this moment with Jonathan, there's a temporary security with David and Jonathan, but it it pales in comparison to the covenant that God has made with his people and that God made with David. Earlier in the service, we sang, How Firm of Foundation. And the second and third stanzas, I believe, are, are very powerful, and they would hit home to David's situation. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed. For I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. David's foundation is in the Lord. And because of this, he is able to go in peace. So as I mentioned at 
the beginning of the sermon, our daughter was born premature and very ill when she was first born, spending her first month and a half of life in the NICU. And when she was first born, things looked very grim, and we, we had no idea what the future held. And as I was studying this passage, I just kept reflecting on our own trials that we have had over these last few weeks and the ways that we have seen the Lord sustain us by his righteous hand. And this is in no way to exemplify the strength that we had, because that's certainly not it. I mean, if, if our faith wasn't in Christ, then we would have crumbled, I mean, like that. But to have that foundation, to have that understanding and that belief that the Lord is sovereign, that he is in control, and to know that he was with us in the storm was the most comforting thing for us. And it brought us a peace that surpasses understanding. Charles Spurgeon said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. And we knew and we know that we serve a good God, we serve a gracious God, and we serve a powerful God who can do more than we could ever think or imagine. However, I think it needs to be said, you know, we have seen that the Lord has healed our daughter and we are over the moon about that. We are so thankful and, and so grateful to the Lord for that. But I will tell you, that's not the reason that I can stand up here and tell you that God is good, simply because I have seen the miracle. I can tell you that God is good because it's the truth. You know, even if our situation had gone from bad to worse to unimaginably tragic, I'll tell you right now, that would not have changed the character of God. And it certainly would not have meant that the Lord had abandoned us. The Lord is good whether he chose to heal our baby here on earth or whether he chose to heal her in heaven. His goodness is not dependent upon whether he does what we think is the best option. James 1 reminds us that we are to count it all joy when we face various trials. And one of the reasons why we are to count it as joy to face trials is because, as Pastor Matt talked about just last week, God has lessons for us in the trials. And we see this clearly in the life of David. As he's facing trial after trial, the Lord is with him. And as these crutches, so to speak, are removed from David's life, as he loses his spouse and his mentor and his friend, his position, soon to be his dignity, and he is left with nothing but his God, he in turn grows closer and closer to his God, to the God of his salvation, grows closer to the God who promises to never leave him or forsake him. And there was immense comfort and security in that truth. And as the chapter ends, it tells us that David rose up and went away, but Jonathan went into the city. And at this point, David doesn't know what will happen next, but he does know that the covenant had secured one relation among all others. And one commentator comments that security is an eight-letter word, and when you spell it out, it looks like this, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we praise you and we thank you that those who are in Christ have the security of your covenant. God, we pray that if there is anyone here who does not know you, who does not have that security, Lord, would you open their eyes and let them see you for who you truly are. Lord, remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. Lord, I also want to pray for those who are believers. 
Father, would you use your word this morning to encourage us, remind us of your goodness and of the security and the comfort that we have in you and only because of you. Help us to remember, Lord, that you are with us in the midst of the storm. For everyone here who may be facing a particularly difficult time, would you use this message to breathe life to their weary souls? Though we may not know what the future holds, Lord, help us to find our rest in the God who knows the future. We thank you, God, and we ask this in your name. Amen.